0: Our sermon series in Isaiah. You turn to chapter 58. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. And if you don't have a Bible, words will be on the screen behind me. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humble ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress your, all your workers. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and you will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. day. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Jonathan Sachs, former chief rabbi of Great Britain, references what he calls the counterintuitive phenomenon of Jewish history, counterintuitive meaning that going against common sense. Here's what he says, and I would, as I read this, what he says, this applies to Christians and Christianity as well. When it was hard to be a Jew, Sachs wrote, people stayed Jewish. When it was easy to be a Jew, people stopped being Jewish. Now, that's very counterintuitive, but counterintuitive realities are all over our lives. There's counterintuitive realities that you face every day, and certainly what is written here in Isaiah chapter 58 is counterintuitive. Isaiah 58 answers the question, what is the path to a flourishing life? Now, let me explain what that question is and what it isn't. By asking that question, I'm not asking, what is the path to your best life now? Or what is the path to a comfortable, pain-free life? That's not what the question is. A flourishing life is not necessarily your best life now. And it's not necessarily a comfortable, pain-free life. Chapter 58 of Isaiah lays out two paths. Contrast. Two paths of life that are going to answer this question, what is the path to a flourishing life? One path laid out is reasonable, but unsuccessful toward the flourishing life. The other path is absolutely counterintuitive, but the successful path to flourish. So let's start first with the reasonable but unsuccessful path of flourishing. In verse 1, Isaiah is commanded to declare to God's people their sin, their transgressions. What follows in verses 2 to 3 is, is not expected. What you expect to hear if Isaiah is laying out the sin of his people, you would expect to hear a couple of verses on lying and cheating and drinking and cussing and gossiping and let the list go on but that's not what verses 2 and 3 say yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God they ask of me righteous judgments they delight to draw near to me why have we fasted and you see it not why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of? It? Look at the list here. This is quite an impressive list. They're seeking God daily. They're seeking God's will. They're praying. They're asking of Him. They're delighting to draw near to Him. They're fasting. This is the list that you would expect to hear for the model Christian life. If someone were to lay out, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it look like to be a faithful Christian? All of these behaviors would be included in the list. not see it, and he doesn't take knowledge of it. Why wasn't God impressed? What was the problem? Second half of verse 3. Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. The behaviors were in the The outward behaviors were right, but their motive was to pressure God, to influence God, to give them what they wanted. And the problem is, that is how all of the various religions around them function in the culture of their day the functional belief of all the religions around Israel in that day, and I would say all the major world religions today, function this way, which is to say, if you do X, God will do Y for you. That if you do these certain things, God will give you what you want. In Isaiah's day, it was, if you needed rain for your crops, You would sacrifice to the rain god until the rain god supplied rain for your crops. We see this this interaction probably most striking in 1 Kings 18 when there's a battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal are trying to get their god, Baal, to, to bring fire down on the altar. And so they start by just calling out to him. And he doesn't bring fire. So then they begin to dance around the fire pit. They do their own dance for him. And he still doesn't bring fire. So then they go to cutting themselves so that blood is gushing out. The payment escalates. When they don't get what they want, they just keep giving and sacrificing more to try to get their God, Baal, to do something. God's people were acting no different here. They were doing all these things, praying, fasting, in an attempt to get God to give them what they wanted. They were seeking their own pleasure. They were treating God like a store clerk. Bring the right payment and you'll get that pair of jeans that you've wanted for a long time. Bring the right payment and you'll get that shiny toy that you've just been dying to get that you saw on a commercial the other day. right? They were treating God like a store clerk. Pray, fast, hide, read your Bible so that God will bless you and give you what you want. And what he says here is, they were doing all of this to advantage themselves and then oppression workers to disadvantage others. The motive was to advantage self at the expense of others, to disadvantage others. i shared this before, but Elizabeth Elliot shares this great fictitious story about Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and his disciples were just gathered around one day. They were about to go on a journey. And so Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to pick up a stone and carry it for me. And Peter, of course Peter, says, Jesus, why? And he said, Peter, just pick up a stone and carry it for me. So Peter goes, okay. No size specifications. So he picks up the tiniest little pebble he can find and he sticks it in his pocket. And they start their journey. About lunchtime, Jesus calls them all together. He waves his hand in the air. He turns the stones into bread. And he says, Okay, there's your lunch. Eat up. Peter takes out his little, now, morsel of bread, eats it as an appetizer. Still hungry, he said, I'm saying to himself, why, why didn't Jesus tell me this? Jesus says, All right, pick up the stone, carry it for me. We're going to continue on. Peter goes, Ha ha! I get it now. I get it. So Peter picks up this massive boulder, hoists it on his shoulder, gasping for breath, walking down the path on this height. And all he can think, he's suffering tremendously. He can't wait. Oh, supper's going to be so good. And in supper time, Jesus calls the disciples off to the side to the riverbank. And he says, okay, I want you to take your stone and throw it in the water. So Peter shot puts his boulder in the water. And Jesus says, okay, let's carry on and follow me. And Peter is just staring. Dumbstruck at Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, who were you carrying that stone for? Right behavior. Wrong motivation. Right behavior, wrong motivation. I've called this the reasonable but unsuccessful path to flourishing. It sounds reasonable. She life. In fact, that is the mantra of the culture of our day. You want a flourishing life, go get it. Seek your pleasure, do what makes you happy, and you'll have a flourishing life. The problem is, what is the result of this kind of path? Look at verse 4. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Seeking your own pleasure and doing what makes you happy does not lead to a flourishing life. It leads to a quarreling life. James says it this way in chapter 4 verses 1 to 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Now this isn't surprising. This isn't surprising. If you're living uh, to seek your own pleasure then people become obstacles to that. Because people get in the way of you getting what you want. Your children get in the way of what you want. Parents, you don't have to say amen. Your spouse gets in the way of what you want. Don't elbow. This is reality. Your co-workers get in the way of what you want. The people that work for you at your vocation or your job get in the way of what you want when they don't do what you want to do. Your friends get in the way of what you want. And when someone gets in the way of what you want, what do you do? You get really mad. You argue, fight. Maybe you keep it in a little. Our first parents in the garden in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. I want you to see where this whole trajectory started. In Genesis 1 and 2, our first parents, Adam and Eve, had a great flourishing relationship with God. They had a flourishing relationship with each other. And then in Genesis 3, Satan comes into the garden and plants the seed in their hearts, that God is holding out on them. That there was something good that they could have, but God was keeping it from them. And so they believed the lie, and they set out on a journey to try to find this good that was being held from them. They began to seek pleasure apart from God. And what happened? Well, immediately, they began, they covered themselves, they hid. They didn't only hide from God, but they hid from each other. And so now in this first marriage, you had two people that suddenly were hiding from each other, suspicious of each other, controlling what the other person knew. Transparency was lost. And not only that, but they then passed this sin down to their children, two sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel learned from mom and daddy. Because when Cain offered an offering to God and didn't get what he wanted from that offering, but Abel offered something to the Lord and got what he wanted, Cain got mad. And he murdered Abel. This is where it all began and relationships allies became enemies. a harmonious relationship became an adversarial one. This is where it began and it continues to this day. So a couple of questions. One, is your life just consistently marked by quarreling and fighting? Are you constantly fighting with your spouse? Or are you constantly at war with your children? Or do people at your job just disappoint you all the time? Are you mad? Are you angry? Are you disappointed with people at work all the time? If this is a a kind of a low level reality to your life, then it's a sign. It's a sign that you're functionally living for your own pleasure. Because that means regularly you're not getting what you want, and that's what leads to quarreling. And that's what leads to fighting. It does not lead to a flourishing life. Say, well, what does? What does lead to a flourishing life? Let's look at this second path that is laid out here in Isaiah 58. This is the counterintuitive. Again, meaning that word is, is a reality that is it's not common sense. Counterintuitive, but successful path to flourishing. Verse 6. Is not this the path that I choose? Pause here. Fasting is a discipline in the scriptures that God prescribes. Fasting is about removing food for a period of time. You could fast for a day or a couple days or whatever. It's removing food so that you can seek God. It's so that you can love God and love others. So that you can actually pour yourself out for God and others. The problem is, they were fasting to love self. So God says, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and to hide yourself from your own flesh. God is laying out here a number of behaviors that pleases him. Create a just society where people aren't treated like objects. Meet individual needs. When someone's hungry, feed them. When someone's homeless, give them lodging. Take care of your family. These are behaviors that God lays out that he's looking for. But then verses 8 to 9, on the surface, seem to lay out these blessings. And if you just kind of read it at a surface level, it can appear as though what God is saying is, listen, in verses 2 and 3, you had some behaviors. You were praying, you were fasting, you were seeking me. That's not wrong, it was just insufficient. And so now I'm going to give you some behaviors in 8 and 9, that if you'll just add these, then you'll be happy and I'll be happy. That if you do this, God will bless you. The problem is, is that if you interpret and read these verses that way, mm-hmm. nothing has really changed. The problem in verses 2 and 3 is they were doing all these things to seek their own pleasure. All the things that are laid out in 8 and 9, you can also do to seek your own pleasure. When you can feed the homeless to feel good about yourself. Or you can feed the homeless to, to, to for some sort of benefit of self. That's not what is being taught here. Verses 6-9 to aren't cause and effect statements. That if you do this, God will do this. No, these are probably more so effect and cause statements. Meaning, that if you find that you're giving lodging to the homeless, feeding the hungry, bringing justice to the oppressed if you find that you are seeking the pleasure of others and the good of others beyond your own, then this is evidence of a cause that is outside of you. This is evidence of a cause and a work of God that is outside of you. Now, how do we know this? I want you to look at the language of verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. The word for break forth here is the same word used in Genesis 7 to describe the eruption of floodwaters. This is the eruption of new life. This is, this is uh, repentance type language. This is the, the, the life that erupts out of first time repentance that leads to conversion to Christ or many times of repentance that lead to new life this is new creation, new life type of language verse 8 again, and your healing shall spring up speedily the word for healing is used in Jeremiah to describe new flesh growing over an old wound new flesh growing over an old wound that is is destroying. Think of Ezekiel when when, when God says, I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is healing language. And second half of verse 8, your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Righteousness is a theme throughout the book of Isaiah. The question is, what is God speaking of here when he says, your righteousness. Well, in Isaiah 64, 6, it says that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Why? Same reason we talked about. It. All of our righteous deeds, the right outward behaviors, but with the wrong motivation, polluted motivation. So clearly, this is not the righteousness that God is speaking of here in verse 8. Now, what he's speaking of is explained a couple chapters earlier in Isaiah 53:11. By his knowledge shall a righteous one, my servant, speaking of Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Accounted righteous. God provides righteousness through his son, Jesus. This is the great truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ lived a righteous, perfect life in your place. And then died in your place to pay the penalty for your unrighteousness. And that when you trust Jesus and put your faith in Jesus, he gives you his perfect righteousness and he takes your unrighteousness from you it's called the great exchange it's beautiful you get a grand new record so we've got new life in verse 8 we've got new healing new heart we've got here a new record in verse 8 now verse 9 then you shall call and the Lord will answer you shall cry and he will say here I am that's nearness that's intimate relationship That's restored relationship, renewed relationship with God. You put all of these together. And what you have here is language of what happens when you repent and turn to Jesus Christ the first time. And when you repent and turn to Jesus for the second, third, hundred, thousand time. New life. renewed intimacy. All of that. You have a new self. You have a new wanter that desires Jesus. And this new self seeks to satisfy the desire of others over the desire of self. So all this language in 89 is describing new life and a new self that has a very different motivation. It's the motivation to satisfy the desire of others over satisfying the desire of self. You say, why and how does this happen? Look at verse 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, verse 11, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. See, the same phrase is used there. As Christ satisfies your desire, then you seek to satisfy the desires of others. The primary sin problem that God is speaking of here in Isaiah 58 is not behavior. It's motivational. The primary sin problem God is speaking of here is one of motive. It's one of motive. What is behind the behaviors? His people were seeking their own pleasure and it's the same thing that plagues us today. And here's the bad news. The bad news is that in and of yourself, You will only and you will always seek the pleasure of self. In and of yourself, you have no choice. You can change behaviors. And you can change behaviors for a period of time. But you can't change your motivation. You and I are born in this world enslaved to self. And and you can... Change your behaviors from really good to really bad, and you can do all of that. But you don't have the power to change your primary, fundamental motivation in life. You're born enslaved to self because you and I inherit the sin from our first parents. I want you to imagine that you're listening to a middle school student play on piano. And this middle school student is a novice. They're not very good. And so they start playing and it's really bad. It's just really bad music. Like they don't have a chalkboard, the notes are off, kind of causes you to cringe. And you're like, oh my goodness. If I could just hear Mozart playing this piano, it would soothe my soul so much. So you bring Mozart back from the dead, put him on the piano. And he starts playing. And to your shock, it sounds awful. It sounds bad. It causes you to cringe. And then you realize in that moment, you realize what the problem is. The piano is severely out of tune. And it doesn't matter if you put a middle school novice on the piano or you put the greatest pianist of all time in the entire world on the piano it is not going to produce good music. And so it is with you and me. Your heart, the control center of life, is severely out of tune. And left to itself, it will only play the dirge itself. Only Jesus can retune your heart, and he does it through faith and repentance. You're actually given a new heart that's in tune with new desires, which gives you the power to seek to satisfy the desire of others over yourself, to satisfy the happiness of others over yourself, the needs of others over yourself. But that can only happen through Jesus. Jesus empowers you to be not a self-hating person. Jesus empowers you to be a self-forgetful person. Self is satisfied in him. And now you're able to pour yourself out to others. And all of this culminates in verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Did you know what it said in there? You are satisfied in really good circumstances. No, it didn't say that. It says you're satisfied in storage. Places. As I said earlier, the flourishing life is not a comfortable, pain-free life. It's not your best life now. The flourishing life exists in scorched places. The flourishing life is deep commitment or contentment in Jesus in scorched places. And what you find is that when you're in the middle of a scorched place you look right, you look left and you will find a bunch of people around you who are in scorched places because that's the world we live in that's the broken world we live in life is hard, life is difficult life is lived predominantly in the scorched places in some form or fashion And what God says here is that when you are finding deep satisfaction in Jesus in the scorched places, that then you become a spring of water to others who are in scorched places, to those in need, the hungry, the homeless, the oppressed, the hurting. You become the fountain through which the healing waters of Jesus flow. Jesus says in John 7, 38, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here's the question. Are you living for Jesus? Or are you living from Jesus? You say, why? But are you living for Jesus? That's actually a good thing. Are you living for Jesus and not for yourself? But I would argue that you can't really live a sustained life for Jesus, or can't even live for Jesus, unless you are living from Jesus. Let me explain that. Have you ever seen... One of those stormwater retention ponds that has like a spillway on one end of it. And so if, if you're in a season of great drought, and there's not been rain, you know, that water level is well below the spillway, nothing's flowing over the spillway. But then, in a season of sustained heavy down rain downfall and downpours, what happens? That water level rises to the point where it begins to flow over the spillway. If you're you're just trying to live for Jesus, it can look a lot like that imagery, where in seasons of drought, of severe drought, hardship, suffering, you don't have the resources to even live for Jesus, let alone live for others, you become very myopic in your view, introspective, you start to close down. If there's kind of heavy rainfall and it's seasons of blessings, then maybe, okay, now you've got the resources, extra margins to pour out for Jesus and for others. That's very different from a spring. Have you ever seen a spring before? It just flows. Seasons of drought. Seasons of heavy sustained rainfall. The spring just continues to flow. That's what it means to live from Jesus. To live from Jesus and for Jesus. When you're living from Jesus, you are a spring of water. In the scorched places. And, And Jesus is flowing through you and overflowing to those around you, to be a blessing to those around you, to all the people that are mentioned in verses 8 and 9 that are needy and need help, that you become this fountain of living water. And it's not your water. It's the water of Christ. It's the healing waters of Christ that flow through you. Your kids' school, at events, gatherings, if if you will look around you and if you will ask, God, would you open my eyes to those around me who are in scorched places? There will be many that He brings to mind. And then you'll realize, wow, not much different than me because I'm in a scorched place. And yet, And then people begin to ask, "Man, how you're in a scorched place?" We use that word. You're in a really hard place. What's going on in your life? And you, th- how how are you doing this? What where is the source of your joy in the midst of this really hard season of your life? You should be hungered down. You should be miserable. You should be demanding for help. And, and yet you're pouring yourself out. And there's the opportunity. To share where that healing comes from. It's not you, it's Jesus. And that's what people need in our scorched world, in our broken world. Let's pray. Father, we all, to various degrees, are living in a scorched place. We could name the circumstances in our life, in the lives of our kids that keep us from going to sleep at night, that cause us to wake up with anxiety. We don't have to figure out what the scorched place means. But Father, oftentimes suffering can make us so selfish and turn our eyes so inward. Jesus, we ask, as you promised, that you would satisfy us deeply in the scorched places. That your healing waters would flow in us, through us, and over us to those around us who are living in scorched places as well. Father, thank you for this meal that we're about to eat that you have intended for us to eat so that we would be filled to overflow. Father, prepare our hearts now as we sing and prepare for this meal to be honest about the the scorched places in our lives and to be honest about the emptiness that it brings and the hurt, the pain that it brings that we would come empty and leave that's what you intend.